Thank you, Joanne. It's a privilege for me to be here tonight. And uh, I was I was here for the supper and sat with two young ladies. Uh, I don't know. Where, oh, there they are down there. Uh, Sydney and Janae. And they asked me along the lines of, you know, what kind of things I might be talking about. And I said, do you guys like lion stories? And they said, well, yeah. So I said, well, do you want me to tell a lion story? So they said, sure. So here we go. This happened to me. I was over in Kenya, and I took uh, a medical team over there with me. And uh, after they had done a lot of wonderful things up in the bush uh, for people who lived in little villages, they came back to the city of Nairobi, and they said, we can't believe we've been in Africa for almost like over two weeks and we've never seen an ostrich, a giraffe, a zebra. We have seen nothing. And we just can't go home without telling people that we saw something because they'd been very focused. So I managed to uh, borrow a nice uh, old van. Uh, and I forget, it was about a dozen seater. But there was only about six or seven nurses who wanted to go. So we headed out, and we got out over on the savannas uh, and looking around, and I said, I've got, I've got to tell you something. It may not go well. They wanted to see a lion, a live lion, and uh, in the wild. So we're not talking about something tame that you'd find at a zoo. We're talking about the real McCoy here. And I said, I got news for you. We may not see a lion because if you guys have ever watched National Geographic or whatever, the migration of the wildebeest, if you've ever seen that, so that's a true picture of how the animal kingdom has to move around according to the system of the rains. So when there hasn't been rain for a couple of months, the grass just becomes withered and stubble, and the animals then move across uh, the terrain to find a place where it's been raining. So it's an annual event where they migrate. And I said, the migration just took place. The animals are gone. There won't be lions around here. There's nothing for them to eat. I no sooner said that, we came over a rise, and there's five adult lions laying right beside this path that we were driving on. So, happy day, I was wrong, so we pulled up beside these lions. And uh, I just left the van running, because to get it going to the begin with, I had to get a bunch of African, guy, African guys to push it. And it was the kind of vehicle that if you got it rolling and you popped out what's called the clutch, actually the vehicle would start. So you don't want to have it shut off out here. So I just left it running. And here these ladies are winding down the windows and they're calling out to the lions through the, you know, the space about an inch over the glass. Yeah, kitty, 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 kitty. <laughs> and I said, those are not kitties. And, and, and uh, the, the one lady that, uh, was on the elderly side she was climbing over the seats and getting around the van. She was locking all the doors like that was going to help, right? And uh, she just wanted to make sure we're safe. So we're just sitting there, and they're taking pictures, and they're calling to them. And these lions are just laying there. They're not doing anything. They're just swatting flies with their tail. But I'm watching the clock. We sat there for 40 minutes or more, and I know I've been over there so much. I, I, I spent a good part of my life in Africa and... 35 other countries so I've traveled and I kind of know their I kind of know their habits and they usually don't hunt in the in the heat of the day 
When the sun starts going down, their tummies start talking to them, and it's cool enough, and they start hunting. So I'm thinking, you know, they're going to be up pretty soon. We're going to be able to watch them. But so far, they've just been laying there. And all of the chatter away of these ladies, and they're taking pictures, aren't they cute, and all this stuff. These were major beasts. Like, they go about eight feet long, right? They're massive things. And uh, their fangs, everything about them is just ferocious. And all of a sudden, we're sitting there in dead silence. The band motor stopped. And the only way to get going it, remember, is for somebody to push it. Batteries dead, nothing. I'm turning the key to, to try and get the little lights, anything to come on. The truck is dead. So the ladies hadn't even noticed, and I'm not going to alarm them, and they're just watching and watching and looking at the lions. And off in the distance, I saw a four-wheel Jeep. Like a real powerful car, the kind of thing that you want to have if you're going on a, on a significant safari. I saw it in the distance, and uh, I rolled my window down far enough to be able to get my arm out, and I'm waving. And the one good thing is, uh, we're all friends out there, and if you see a vehicle stopped out in the wilderness, if you see a vehicle parked, there's one of two things. They're either in crisis, or they see something that you want to see. So with my arm waving and whatever and hoping they'd see me, they came. And when they arrived, they pulled their vehicle up beside me and they're saying, hey, you found a nice pride of lions, five beauties. And I said, yeah. I said, but I got a challenge. This baby doesn't want to start. He said, whoa. And uh, I said, you wouldn't have a rope on board, would you? And he said, well, yeah, I do. And I said, so you've got some uh, equipment on the back we can tie on? Well, yeah. I said, well, uh, maybe you'll tow me for a ways and get this thing rolling, and uh, that would be the same as pushing it. Oh, okay. So I said, well, if you just back up to my back bumper, uh, I'll jump out, tie onto the back of mine and onto the back of yours, and you can pull me backwards. Let's hope it'll start that way. He said, great idea. How are we going to get them tied together? I said, that's my problem. Oh, yeah, that is your problem. And uh, all the while, every minute that's going by means we're getting closer and closer to when those lions are going to stand up. And uh, this man had a wife in the vehicle with him, and she called over across the seats. And she said, sir, could you just wait uh, just a few moments and I said, okay, uh, what's that about? She said, I want to put a fresh roll of film in my camera. I don't want to miss this. Now, when a lion takes its prey down, the first thing it does is it grabs by the neck and it breaks off your windpipe and you actually suffocate. The other guy that shows up Right behind that one goes for your soft belly, and that's where they start in. This lady wanted a whole roll of film. Uh, you guys aren't familiar with rolls of film, but this is a few years ago. This is when you put a roll of film in. So she wanted a fresh roll of film, 36 frames. She was going to get it all. I was going to be on the cover of National Geographic. 
a really stupid missionary who jumped out into the midst of five lions. He thought he was Daniel in the lion's den. So I jumped out and I dove under the van and uh, to try and be protected. And I'm scrambling, trying to get the rope, trying to get the rope done, trying to get the rope done. I finally got it done, jumped back in the van, and the lions are still there lazily looking around. And this guy towed me backwards for probably three quarters of a mile, and the van still didn't start. So I lazily got out. The lions are well in the distance. They're, 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 they're close to a mile away. No problem. I'm out of the van now, and I'm trying to get the knot untied that I had tied. And all of a sudden, the ladies in the van start screaming. I mean, the van's almost rocking. And they're yelling, Dave, Dave, Dave. I said, just a minute. Just a, I'm trying to get the knot untied. The guy in the Jeep starts honking the horn. Dave, Dave, Dave. I look out. What is it? The kitty cats have followed us. They're here. I got the rope untied, jumped inside. He pulls up beside me and he says, now what are we going to do? Now here's the challenge. The cats are ready to eat. <laughs> and Sobeys is closed. <laughs> and they're willing to eat anything that's fresh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, hey, what am I going to do? So now he backs up to my front bumper and he says, I suppose you're going to tie it on the front now. I said, I am. He said, you're crazy. I said, hey, I can't spend the night here with five nurses like I want out of here, Jack. So, <laughs> so I just prayed a little prayer, and Joanne, I jumped out again, and I dove under the van, but now I've got five cats that are intrigued. I'm about the biggest mouse that they've ever seen crawling around. I'm telling you, they, the cats are now excited. I could hear them, feed five full fum. I smell the blood of a dandy missionary, and now... As I'm laying there trying to tie this rope again, now his bumper to mine, I'm looking and I can see these big paws. You know how big their paws are? They're huge. And there's five cats going around and around and around. What are they doing? They're working up an appetite, Mama. I'm one big porky. They're getting ready for to eat. I got it tied and I've got seconds left. I mean, this is tight. This is tight timing. And I watched. I'm not, I'm not embellishing this. This is the truth. I watched for where all those paws were. There's five of them. Some of them are stooped down on that side. They're looking down underneath at me. Their eyes are huge. And like they've got something in mind. And I waited until I could see that they're either up in front of his vehicle or whatever. And I scooped out on this side of the van, remote from them. And I'm at a front door, and I grab a hold of it to pull it open. Anybody want to guess what was going on with that door? That lady had locked the door. And I'm pulling on it, and I'm yelling, open the door! And I see she was elderly. I could see this bony finger going like this. When you're nervous like she was, she's never seen, she's never seen a lion eat porky pig. And she's, uh, she's wound up, and she's trying to get that thing up. She can't. I'm saying, come on, Grandma! All of a sudden, I actually heard that thing come up. I snapped the door open. I looked. The lion's there. 
The lion suddenly is in midair like this is split second timing. I dove into the seat of that van. I don't know how I got the door closed. It's a wonder that that, that lion actually didn't hit the butt of the door. I barely got it closed. The women are sitting there frantic and they're all crying. I looked around and I said, I want to know one thing. Who locked the door? And this elderly lady from British Columbia said, it was me, brother. I'm so sorry. I said, not as sorry as I am. I said, why did you lock the door? I was afraid that cat, when it was done with you, was coming in here. And I was going to lock the door. So the Bible says... <laughs> I was wondering what I would share with you guys tonight. And so I'm done with that story. There's another story coming. And it's nothing to do with lions. You have to settle down now. I've got them laughing, and that's not a good sign. But it's all these giddy ones at the front, so we're okay. I really liked what went on here tonight. I'm a very old geezer. I know you can't tell that to look at me, but I am. And as I observed what was going on in here, and I really liked what Joanna said, come on up here and we'll get started right. You guys all came up and the music got going. And you know, there's something about making a move. Coming forward like you did is actually a form of commitment. It's not a deep commitment. It's not a huge commitment. But anybody can remain in the distance. Anybody can remain outside. Anyone can, in fact, keep their opinion to themselves and not enter into the discussion. Anybody can hide in the shadows and not step out. And actually, in some of our churches, we have people who show up on Sunday mornings, and the big thing they're thinking about is, I hope that preacher's done soon, because I want to get to Swiss Chalet. Do you have one in this town? Oh, good. They're non-committed. And what we need to do is become committed. We need to be prepared to make a move. In order for you to advance in any area of your life, you can't remain where you are. All creativity involves change. All advancement, all productivity requires change and just even coming forward like you did tonight that's a form of change that was a form of cooperation I liked what I saw and therefore when I get finished in just a few minutes I'm gonna ask you to repeat that and I'm gonna ask you to come forward and just stand with me here for a couple of minutes when I get done I want to start off by telling you about a fellow whose name is Moses. So many of you could tell the story better than myself. It's a story we're familiar with in Sunday school classes, youth groups. Pastors often refer to this icon of Hebrew ancient Bible history, a man that God used to bring the Jewish people out of Egyptian bondage. 
It's interesting when you think about how Moses even got started in life. He was born at a very, very precarious time in Egyptian history where the Egyptians had actually conquered Israel, taken the people of Israel to their country and turned all of the, uh, they hadn't conquered them in this fashion, but that they, they, these people, the Jews, had moved to Egypt because they were starving. And over the years as they were there, the Egyptian people, so powerful, caused these people to be in a submissive posture and they became slaves. So by the time that Moses is about to be born, the Egyptian pharaoh is getting some advice from some of his elders. You better do something about these slaves because they outnumber you many to one. If they ever got there in their heads that they wanted to fight you, they just might defeat you. So the pharaoh decides, I've got to diminish their numbers, and he organized for the death of all male children. Moses was born in that hour. Moses' mother, being concerned about her little boy, made a plan to salvage his life. It's quite a unique story of how Moses uh, was set in a little basket that had been crafted from the reeds along the side of the Nile. I've crossed the Nile. I crossed the Nile one day. I was trying to escape from rebels. I actually crossed the Nile on a raft, uh, running from rebels from the Sudan who were very ugly people. So I stood at the side of the Nile in 2003 and looked at these reeds along the side of the Nile and thought they used these reeds to form a little cradle for that little fellow. As it happened, the Egyptian pharaoh's daughter was down at the riverside. She heard a baby crying, and the story goes on of how she got her handmaidens to rescue that child, and for whatever reason, she wanted to have a little baby in her care, and uh, so she took it back to the palace and uh, this is the kind of thing could have happened back there. When a woman had a child, it wasn't always a well-known thing. And so she was able to bring that child into the palace. And out of due respect, she kept that child and people weren't realizing where she got it. This little fellow's name was Moses. And the Bible says in the book of Acts, as it recounts for us in the New Testament and reflects on the story of the Old Testament, it says... That because Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh, because he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, he rose up knowing the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful. He was oratorical. He could speak. And he had a demeanor about him that commanded many, many people. As the, as the grandson of Pharaoh he could look forward to a day when he might be chosen to be the next Pharaoh. And with that in mind, they poured into his life as an Egyptian prince the finest concepts. He learned all the philosophies of the day. He mastered subjects like mathematics. He mastered subjects like geography. Egypt ruled the then known world. So if you're going to be the prince in charge of the greatest empire of the world at that time, you better have an understanding of the peoples over whom you rule. So he was learning about the different tribes of people that his country was lording it over. He learned hieroglyphics. He learned how to build uh, 
those massive buildings that people go over to see, those pyramids. He would learn all of that stuff. He would learn architecture. He would learn mathematics. He would learn everything. This fellow, when he wanted to go out for a ride, didn't go on a bicycle. He mounted a royal chariot. And he would be escorted by powerful soldiers. He was under continuous surveillance because this was the grand grandson of the Pharaoh. He rose up and now he's 40 years of age. This guy's never cleaned his own fingernails. People wait on him hand and foot. He knew what it was to smell nice. He, he would take a bath in some of the finest oils and the just the most beautiful things in the world. People would be doing his hair. People would be taking care of him. People doted over him. He ate whatever food he wanted. He was a spoiled brat in the house of the Pharaoh. And then suddenly, because he got a little out of control when he saw a fight going on out in the streets between a couple of fellows, he intervened, got himself in trouble, and to make a long story short, he had to run for his life. He's now being pursued, and there's actually a price on his head. He went from being the most prominent young prince in all of Egypt to one of the, to one of the most sought-after fugitives in Egypt. And the next thing we find with him is he's out in the desert with a bunch of sheep where he got a job out there with somebody in a distant country. So here he has eaten the finest foods from the hands of the finest cooks for 40 years, and now Moses is struggling with a bunch of sheep. And if we could have only tuned in and listened to his conversation as he would talk to himself, he might have said, what is going on? Forty years I dined sumptuously on the finest that the world can offer. For forty years I was the most highly educated young man in Egypt, and now I'm being wasted out here managing sheep. But what he didn't realize was that God had a plan for his life. That none of these days were wasted. The Lord got his attention one day and said, Moses, I have a task for you. All of those Hebrew people in Egypt are mine. I've heard their cries as they feel like they want to be free. They want to get going. I've heard their cries and Moses, I've selected you. Moses as much as said, who, me? What have I got to offer, Lord? I'm just a zero. Who am I? My life is at stake if I even go back into Egypt. You want me to do what? But the Lord God said, this is what I want you to do. And the Lord outfitted him with some special tools of the trade. As Moses is going back into the, into the region of Egypt and is inviting these people to follow him, little did he know that all of the things that he had gone through in his younger days, between being raised in the house of Egypt, in the, in the Pharaoh's house, between that and then spending how many years out in the desert working with the sheep, he had all of the knowledge that it was going to take to do the impossible task of being the pastor of over a million people. Biblical historians tell us. 
that he was commanding at least a million people when they headed out of Egypt. Having been raised in the house of Pharaoh, learning geography, learning the lands, learning all of this, he knew where he was going. He had a clear understanding. He almost had a built-in GPS. His knowledge was incredible. And having been trained on how to become a conqueror and how to be an army commander, he was able to stand before the Israelite men and say, I'm going to turn you into soldiers. You're going to have to follow me. We're going to go to a land you've never seen. And on our way, we're going to be meeting formidable armies. But I'm going to train you. And with God, God with us, we're going to fight valiantly. But I'm going to train you. I'm going to show you. And nobody was more equipped to train these men to be agile with a sword. Nobody was more equipped to command a huge army and move them along. But as they're heading out there into the desert areas, they must have been saying, how are we going to survive out here? And his answer would have been, I lived out here between 30 and 40 years. I know how to live in the desert. He knew how to command people. He knew how to lead them. He knew what it was to have everything. And he knew what it was to have nothing. There wasn't a person on the planet that was more prepared to do what God called him to do. He led them faithfully. He did incredible feats with them. If you attend church somewhat frequently, if you've got a pastor that teaches the word of God, this story is not fiction to you. You've heard it. If you're a good reader of your Bible, if you're like me, Back in the day, I used to keep on saying, okay, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And I always started with Genesis. The next book of the Bible is Exodus. I read the book of, Je of Exodus probably every year because every year I started all over again at Genesis. I never got through to the other end. So I read this story every year because I'm a slow reader. So you know that this is a true story. What's so important for us to realize is that all of that stuff that he went through was actually preparation for the fulfillment of God's plan for his life. I want you to know tonight that I'm old enough to be the grandfather of most of you here. And having traveled the world and having spoken to conferences of mega thousands, but having been out in the deserts of Maasai Mara and spending the night with young Maasai warriors, sitting around in the middle of the night talking with them, to sitting in the presence of presidents, of political agents, I've seen so much and I've heard so much. I really feel I have something to share with people like you. I believe I can get away with saying this tonight. No matter what your address is, no matter whether you come from a dysfunctional home or a happy, wonderful home, no matter whether you think you have a wonderful mom and dad, or if you're sitting here tonight and saying, I don't even know, I've never met my dad, 
I've met young people who have said, I've had three dads and right now I don't have one. I've met so many people that have been abused and hurt. And so often these people that have gone through such difficult times are now persuaded, I'm not going to make it. I'm a basket case. I've met people who at some point in their life were like Moses. Everything was perfect. They lived in the perfect situation. They never had a want for clothing or for fine food. They got all kinds of opportunities. And then mom and dad's marriage blew up. And that kid ended up with almost nothing. I was preaching a camp meeting out in Alberta. <clears throat> and uh, this is a few years ago. And this man came up to me after a service. And he said, uh, David, could I talk to you? I said, yeah. He said, not now. Tomorrow morning. In fact, he said, to make it tomorrow afternoon at 1 o'clock, right after the dinner hour. I said, sure, I'll meet you right here. No, 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 people will see us, not here. I, I don't want to meet you here. Where do you want to meet me? Out behind the dining hall. Nobody ever goes back there. When I got there at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I saw why nobody ever goes there. That's where the cooks would throw all the peelings of the vegetables. That's where they actually threw the leftover foods out there. So the coyotes and whatever animals, the raccoons would come around and it was a feasting for them at night. Whatever didn't get devoured by all these wild animals was stinking to high heaven. And he chose there to talk with me. I couldn't get over that. We're flies are buzzing around. I thought, what a place to meet. And as we stood there and as he started to unfold his story, I began to understand why he wanted to meet there. Because he actually was more comfortable standing in the midst of that refuse than he would anywhere else. And he had such a sordid story that he didn't want anybody else to know. So he knew that would be a safe place. He didn't even want anybody asking him, Say, I saw you talking to the evangelist. What were you guys talking about? Because he was actually quite well known. He told me this story that as a young child, his mom and dad broke up. He found himself sitting in a courtroom in front of a judge. And the father clearly enunciating, no, I don't want him. And the mother cursing him out and breaking into an argument, and the judge having to call a truce and say, I'm calling order in my court. She said, well, I don't want the brat either. But apparently sitting at the back of the courtroom was a brother of either his mom or his dad. That man came forward and said, we'll take him. So this kid now has a new home, but only by default. It wasn't because somebody loved him or cared about him. It was just somebody was willing. The story that he began to unfold for me now was a, it was a sad story. He said, when I got to that house, he said, there were already two boys in that house. He said, they didn't want me there. But he said, that dad was a brutal guy. He was so proud of his two sons 
And I'm not sure why I was there at the time, but he said, I figured it out now. You see, the courts awarded certain financial benefits to that man if he would raise this child on behalf of the prophets. He said, now I know what that man, my uncle, was really up to. So he said, that man was kind of a brutal guy, and he was saying to his boys, I want you guys to learn how to fight. So he said, he allowed them to pick on me. And he was always rooting for one of his sons. And he said, if I did any well at this, at this contest, he said, the dad would pull that boy out and put a fresh one in. Say, you see how you can do it. So he said, I lost every battle. He said, one night when I was 13 years of age, I climbed out the window and I ran for it. He said, I didn't know where I was going. I just had to escape. I don't know how he ever managed this, but he ended up living on the West Coast. He lived in the streets between garbage cans at night on Hastings Street in Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver for eight years. I've driven down the streets I've gone down through the Hastings Alley at 11 o'clock at night, and I did not slow down in my car. He lived in a jungle. And one night, when he was wired on some kind of drugs, he darted out on the street for some crazy reason, and he was hit by a car. Before an ambulance could get there to rescue him, there was a man stooping over him saying, it's going to be all right, kid. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm going to take care of you. When the ambulance came, scooped this kid up and put him in, that man told the ambulance driver, I'm right behind you. And over the next few days, as this kid was recuperating, he was visited every day by this man. So that when he was released from hospital, this man said, you come with me. I'll take care of you. He said, I became totally dependent upon this man. The problem with this man was he was a predator. I'm not going to go into any specific details on what happened to this young man. But he was taken into the depths of filth and immorality. He was forced by his situation to live a rotten life. And now this man standing in this heap of garbage is crying. He said, I hated it. It's not where I wanted to be. And finally, he ran from there. And he found himself again out in the streets of Vancouver, and a man came up to him and started speaking to him in a different way that had been spoken to before. Invited him to go somewhere and have a cup of coffee, and they had a chat. And that man was there to talk to him about Jesus. And that man, in the streets of downtown Vancouver, in the midst of horror, discovered 
how wonderful Jesus is. He discovered personally many of the, the words that you saw on that song, those songs here tonight, about how light came into his soul. He went back to Alberta, and now he arrived in Alberta, a committed Christian, and he showed up in church life there. He met a lady in the church, and when she started asking him about his background, he told her a very shaded kind of, he never lied to her, he just said, I don't want to talk about my old life, I want to talk about my new life. By the time he was standing in that garbage heap that afternoon, he had two young teenage girls. And he had so many good things going for him. He was doing well as a salesman somehow in life. And he was so recognized in the local church as a fine, fine man. And he said the pastor continuously comes to him on a fairly routine basis and says, John, you're such a good guy in our church. And I appreciate you so much. Wouldn't you help me? Would you be willing to be the head usher in our church? Would you be willing to lead up a prayer band? Would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to do that? And he said, David, I just continuously back away. Because I just, I know who I am. Nobody knows who I am. Tears are running down his cheeks. He said, my wife doesn't know who I am. My daughters don't know who I am. My pastor doesn't really know who I am. And as I stood there looking at him, I said, let's get out of this garbage. We've got to go for a walk. I think I'd eaten about five flies by now. <laughs> we went for a walk far away from that. We got off down walking a lovely wooded trail. I said, your wife doesn't know who you are. Your pastor doesn't know who you are. Your daughters don't know who you are. I said, John, I figured something out. You don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. And I said, I'm so glad you shared your heart and your life with me because I believe I've got good news for you. I want you to know who you are. You are now, because of your faith in Jesus, you are a son of God. And whether you chose to do those things, those horrible things in the bowels of of Vancouver, whether that was your choice or whether you were forced into it. I said, clearly you have a guilt feeling. I said, I want you to know that's all in the past. And the dysfunctional family you came from, you've proven that you're not dysfunctional. You've got a wonderful wife and wonderful daughters, and the people in the church respect you so much. We had prayer that afternoon as we walked together through the woods. And it was like a light had suddenly come on in his soul. I had the rest of the week with him because I was preaching at this camp meeting. I had opportunity to meet with him and talk with him again and again. And I said, John, do you realize what, what assets you have going for you? I said, do you realize how many people in every town, every village, in every city who have gone through things not unlike you? There are lots of young people whose families are dysfunctional, breaking up. Do you know how many kids are lost and hurting and broken? Do you know how many kids sleep between garbage pails? 
Do you know how much brokenness there is in this world? And I said, I can tell you, I tried reaching out to those kind of people in the, in the streets of Montreal in the 1960s. I met a young girl. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. She was sitting on the side of the street. She clearly had nowhere to go that night. She was a mixed up. She was a lost kid. I sat down beside her with my wife on the street, and I started to try to speak to her about Jesus. Do you know what she said to me? She said, sir, if you knew anything about life, I might listen to you. But just looking at you, I can tell. You've never been where I've been. You've never been broken. You've never been raped by your father. You've never gone without a meal because you failed to bring proper grades home from your school. So, sir, when you've lived in hell, you come and tell me about your heaven. I was empty-handed. What do you tell a teenage girl? I said to John, nobody is going to say that to you. Hell, you could draw pictures for us. You don't have to be pulled through a knothole backwards to be useful to God. You don't have to come from dysfunction. You don't have to have a story of abuse. Moses wasn't abused. He lived in the lap of luxury. What was going on at that time? God was preparing him for a calling. When he got booted out, and he's out there taking sheep. Taking care of sheep, he learned how to be a shepherd. He learned how to deal with sheep. Do you know something about sheep? You can't drive them like you would cows. You can get behind cows. I was raised in a farm. You can drive cows. Come on, bossy, get going, get going. Cows won't follow you. You only have to drive them. With sheep, you have to lead them. They have to trust you or they won't go with you. And Moses was learning about how to lead sheep because his congregation of over a million were like sheep. Whatever we've gone through in our early days is preparation for how God can use us tomorrow. You got a wonderful mom and dad at home? That's great. You have a wonderful story to tell about what it's like to live like that. You've got a wonderful model to show other people. You're going to be a wonderful mom, a wonderful dad, because you've had great examples. But if you've been through a difficult time, you also have a story to tell. This afternoon, as I was thinking about who my friends are and who I could tell you about, I thought about my friend that I call Mo. Mo. That's short for Maury. Maury was raised in a town about 20 miles from where I was raised. And this afternoon, as I was preparing to come here tonight, I went online, and here's what I typed in Google. Child of woe video. Go there sometime. And see the story of my buddy, Maury. It's there. I watched it this afternoon for the first time. I know Maury. I knew Maury when he was a teenager. Maury's got an incredible story. It's out in book form. That book has been printed in five languages. 
Maury's been all over the world telling his story, and he calls his story a child of woe. Maury was, Maury was birthed to a woman who'd already had her first little family. That husband left, and when that husband left, this lady was pregnant with another child who was destined to become Maury. Another man was allowed by her to come into her life. And the first thing that this man told her, that that child in your belly is not my child, and I don't want anything to do with it. He was hated before he breathed fresh air. This man, would he refused to be called Maury's father. He called him names like, I'm not going to repeat in this room here tonight. The things that he called Maury. This man was a hopeless drunk, and he used to beat Maury silly when he got drunk. This man forbid Maury to eat at their table because he said, He's not my son. I won't have him eat at my table. Maury's brothers seldom finished the food on their plate. They always kept some in reserve. And they would sneak up to Maury's bedroom and give him some of their supper. That's how Maury got his evening meal. A couple of times, Maury ran away in desperation. This so-called father called the cops and said, I've got a son that I love so much. His name's Maury. You've got to find him for me. The police did a, a hunt, and lo and behold, a rap at the door. And this drunken bum opened the door. Oh, thank you, officer. My Maury, I've missed you. You poor little fellow. How did you ever get lost? Thank you, officer. You've been so kind. And when the door was shut, he lifted his fist, and he laid a beating on Maury that would kill some of us. At one point, he was in such a drunken rage, Maury was being dangled out of a window over a rocky ledge which cascaded down into the Grand River. I frequently go by the back of Maury's house and look at it, and I say to my wife, Maury hung by his heels from that window. It's a frightful thing just to look at. It was his frightened mother who screamed at him, in the name of Jesus, you pull my son back in here. Maury's life style and tribulation was actually the result of bad choices by his own mom. And one of Maury's powerful message is this to everybody that he meets. Choice today, outcome tomorrow. Everything that we do has a follow-up result. And Maury's abuse was the result of bad choices by his mom. Until one day, and that's another huge story, how he discovered the loving arms of Jesus. Surrendering to Jesus, he gave his heart to the Lord. And I guess it was about two or three years after that that Maury Blair showed up at a Bible college. Pastor Morris and I were at that same college. Here was this friend of ours whose name is Maury. 
And one, morning, one evening, Maury came to my room and sat there and said, David, I don't know how I would ever fit into ministry. I'm not sure what I'm doing here because this college was training us how to become pastors. He said, David, I've never had a pastor. I didn't have a proper father and I had a, dis I had a dysfunctional mother. What am I an example of to anybody? I have nothing to offer. I said, well, what brought you here? He said, I felt this compulsion in my heart, and I prayed, and I called out to God, and I said, Lord God, what is you you want? And he said, I felt this impression in my heart. Lori, I want you. And he said, in that desperate hour of prayer, I cried out to God and said these words, God, I'm just a zero. And he said, it was almost like God screamed at me from heaven and said, Maury, I can use a zero. But he said, now I'm questioning, what am I going to do? I sat there looking at him and I told him the story of that little gal, four o'clock in the morning in Montreal. I said, Maury, that girl screamed at me and said, until you've lived in hell, don't you tell me about your heaven. I said, I can't go down to the streets of Montreal. I can't go down into the valleys of Mount Vancouver or Toronto or any other city. Because I said, I can't relate to those kids. But I said, Maury, you've lived in hell. Nobody can outdo you. Nobody can tell you a story that you don't understand. He said, do you think? Maury has been in high schools all over Canada. He's been studied by psychiatrists, by psychologists, by all kinds of medical people. And here's what they say to Maury. Based on your life story, statistics tell us you should have died in the streets. Or you should have been a raving maniac, a killer, a sociopath, a psychopath. We can't figure out how you've survived. Nobody goes through what you went through and they survive. And Maury's in high schools. What's Maury now? 77 years of age, I think. Can you believe this? He's one of the most in-demand speakers in all of Canada. He goes into high schools, stands on the stage, looks at those kids and says, I made it. You can make it. And whatever it is you're going through in your life now, God can take that and He can mold it and He can make it. And you can make a difference on this campus. You can make a difference if you want to be a nurse or a doctor or if you want to be a bus driver. God wants to take your life and He wants to shape you and mold you. He wants to turn you into something that if He were to show you now what His plan is for you, you'd never believe it. He travels the world and says, there's no hole so deep that God can't reach down and pull you up. There's no filth, stain, or ugliness so thick on your person that Jesus can't clean you. There's no mind so warped that he can't help you to make sense of it. God has never seen a person that he can't use. There's not a person in this room that could say, God has no plan for my life. As sure as God made little green apples, he has a plan for you.
God has a plan for you. Tall, short, skinny, hefty. Do they call you Porky? I've carried this girth all over the world. I can eat everybody else under the table. I, rice, I can put it away. And it hasn't hindered me from helping people all over the world. Wherever I go, I can tell people, Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about you. Doesn't matter which hockey team or basketball team you're rooting for. Now, if you're rooting for the Toronto Maple Leafs, you probably want to be let down again. But I want you to know that there isn't anybody that God can't use. And you can make the difference and you can be the difference. If you'd like to be the difference, we, the old guys, would like to meet some young people who would say, I want to make the difference in this world. I want to believe that God can use me. I want to believe. I want to believe. Help me. If that's you, then I want to be your friend for the next three minutes. I just want to pray around you, with you. I'm not going to center anybody out. I'm as close to you right now as I'm going to get tonight. I'm not going to invade your space. I just want you to know that this old grandpa cares about young people like you. I have 12 grandchildren. I'm very old. And I have experience with kids. And I know what it's like. I know what it's like myself from my earliest days to want to count just a little bit. Would you stand to your feet right now with me? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for the awesome opportunity I've had tonight. An old man speaking to young people. What an honor. What a, what a privilege. And Lord, to think that these people standing here right now are full of such ripe potential. But Lord, I know because you've shown me. I know like so many more just like me. I know that unless that potential that's in our hearts and our lives is turned over unreservedly to Jesus that potential will never be fully enjoyed and realized. Lord, help us none to determine I'm going to live for me. Help none of us, oh God, to say I'm going to become the richest person. I'm going to be the strongest person. I want to be an idol. I want to be this. I want to be that. Lord Jesus, I pray tonight that our hearts would be Jesus first in my life. Help me, Jesus, to make a difference somebody else's life. I ask this in your name. Now I'm going to ask you if you'll repeat what you did earlier. 
you came to the front. Joanne asked you to come. I'm not nearly as good looking as her, but I'd like you to come anyhow. Wait now. And I'd like that music team to go up there and I don't know if the sound guy can do it. But couldn't he arrange for that song that that last one you that you played for us or whoever does that? Can you give me a nod? Do you think you can bring that song up again? It was something about good. You know what I'd like you to consider doing? You'll never make it alone. We've got to do this together. So I'd like you to join somebody else around here. In fact, join a whole bunch of people by, what do you do? I don't know what young people do these days. We join hands. We put our arms around somebody else's shoulder. Because if you want to be used of the Lord, like I said tonight, it doesn't begin out there. It begins right here. And if you can't extend Love and acceptance and kindness right here. You'll never manage to do it out there. So let's get into this song tonight. And I'm not asking you to jump around and wave your arms. I'm asking you to let Jesus speak into the core of your heart. God wants to use every one of us. And He wants us to make ourselves available to Him. So let's, what are you going to do? Sing along with us? Where's the gal that was leading and helping? Do you want my microphone?